listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. We're joined today with a special guest that I was really excited to have join us, Anna Kelly. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sterling. So, Anna, can you tell our listeners that aren't familiar with you, if there are any out there, a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got into real estate investing, what you did before, what your journey was like, and what you're doing today? Sure, Sterling. So that's about a 20-year process. So I'll try to give you kind of the short and sweet version and then let you delve in where you want to. But I started out, I actually grew up in Section 8 housing, Sterling. So I grew up in apartments and I didn't really know anybody that had financial acumen or, you know, could guide me into kind of breaking that cycle of poverty and getting out of that. So I was convinced like most kids in America that success happens by going to school and getting really good grades and getting a good degree and working your way up the corporate ladder. And then one day when you're 65, you'll have enough to retire, hopefully. Right. So that's what I pursued. I made, I was very determined to get out of section eight housing and to get a really good degree and find a really good job. And so I pursued a degree in business management And I started working at Bank of America in their private bank department. So they trained me as a financial advisor and basically started handling the wealth of the top 10% of our wealth in our bank without really having any of my own money, without having really taken a whole lot of personal budgeting classes. But I could tell you about stocks, bonds, mutual funds, life insurance, annuities, et cetera. And it was through that training though that I really started to realize wealthy people have a lot of different ways that they make money. And some of my wealthiest clients owned real estate. And it was kind of this aha moment that one day I want to own real estate because one of my clients had told me one time, Sterling, we were talking about the returns we could offer in different products in our bank. And he laughed and said, you know, I was in my very young twenties and he was older. And he said, I make much more than that on my real estate investments. And it was kind of like, wow, I've learned all this stuff about traditional investments, but I've learned nothing about real estate. It's something I want to learn a little more about, you know, that I can own one day. So that's how my interest was peaked. But I really didn't start investing until a few years later. I realized I was throwing away a lot of money at rent. And, you know, I lived in Houston, Texas. I'm a Texan. And I thought, you know, I'm spending all this money on rent. What if I bought a little condo? And just, you know, had a mortgage instead of rent. And so that was my first real estate purchase was just to kind of save money, right? And went from there to having a little rental property when I bought a house. And then we decided to flip property when I had my first baby. So in 2003, I had my first child and I had a very successful career. At that point, I had left Bank of America and I worked for AIG Life Insurance Company in Houston and was climbing the corporate ladder, loved what I did. But when I had a baby, you know, all that drive kind of went out the window. I just wanted to be home with my kid, right? And putting him in daycare was so heartbreaking. He was premature and had a lot of health issues in the beginning. And I was watching a lot of HGTV flip this house kind of shows. They had just started coming out in 2002 or 2003. And I convinced myself I could flip two houses a year and replace my six-figure income from AIG. So we tried it with a three-month-old baby in tow. We bought our first house to flip and did not do well, learned a lot of mistakes that the TV shows don't show you. And my husband said, we're never doing that again. 
<laughs> so I'm like, okay, I guess flipping isn't going to be the thing. And, you know, then we started down the path of entrepreneurship. My husband was a chiropractor and I thought, well, when he does really well, I can then quit my job. So we moved to Pennsylvania, which is how I got here. I've been here 14 years. And we started a company at the height of the U.S. economy in 2007. And knowing that it wasn't real wise to start a business with several hundred thousand in debt and to buy a house at the same time, we decided to house hack a four-unit apartment building. So I said with kind of my financial background, like, well, if I lost my job with AIG, because they were letting me try a work-from-home gig for a few months to see if it worked, because at that point, there was nobody remote then we at least better have our expenses covered. So we bought a four unit just to have our expenses covered and really downsize so that we could start entrepreneurship. And that's how I got started really investing in small multifamily was house hacking the first one. And then from there, my journey exploded over the next 10 years or so. And now I have active ownership in about a thousand units and passive ownership in about 2000 units, mostly multifamily, but some other asset classes as well. Awesome. I feel like you skipped a few steps along the way there. <laughs> yeah, house hacking a fourplex and now you got 4,000 units. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to delve in, but I, you know, I don't want to take too much time away on my story unless that's where you want to go. I would like to focus a little bit on the transition because a lot of our listeners have a fourplex or, you know, a couple single family rentals and, you know, it took them a year to get there and then so they look at like, you know, how to scale and how to grow. And that's kind of where they're stuck. So I just, I would like to hear a little bit of an elaboration on the transition from like getting started to going big and maybe some like adversity you ran into along the way and how you overcame it. Oh, sure. I have run into tons of adversity, Sterling. And really it took me a long time to get where I am because of so many of those things that were unforeseen. So you know, we started, we moved to Pennsylvania in 2007, which was the very top of the economy. And we didn't know what was coming, right? So, you know, we started this business with several hundred thousand in debt. We bought the little four unit and we bought the building that my husband practices in. And it because it had the office space in the bottom and it had three apartments on top and four garages. So we thought, we thought the same thing. Well, we can either pay for an expensive lease or we can just take a few tenants on and they'll help cover the expense of the building. So we kind of bought two properties at once, becoming landlords by necessity, I say, rather than because we were thinking we were going to be these great real estate investors. But what happened was the next year at the end of 2008, after a great first year in business, the economy started to collapse. And I worked for AIG. My work from home gig worked out and AIG almost went under. They needed a multi-billion dollar bailout by the US government. And I thought I was losing my job. And at that point, all of his money that he made was going back into paying off the several hundred thousand dollars in startup debt. So we depended on my income to live. And I had two little babies. At the time, they were four and one when AIG and, and the economy started to collapse and we went into the Great Recession. And so what I realized was my company that I thought was one of the safest in the world wasn't as safe as I thought it was. I lost more than two thirds of my 401k in a couple of weeks because I was heavily invested in financial stocks because that's where I, that's where I grew and played and thought I was really smart was in the financial sector, but I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So I lost a lot of my retirement 
And I found out that week I was pregnant with baby number three. And I thought my world is collapsing. How am I going to support a family that's now a family of five with a company that's going under when I've lost most of my 401k and my husband's business is going to start struggling too. And the aha moment I had was, you know, I had been told never, ever, ever touch your 401k. It's going to be safe and you're going to dollar cost average and you just ride it out. But all these companies were actually going under. They were not coming back. My stock value wasn't going to go back up. And so I knew I have a very limited window to cut the bleeding, to stop the bleeding. And I transferred my remaining $50,000 in my 401k into the money market fund. And I took a loan against it to buy another four unit building. Why did I do that when they tell you not to do that? Because I realized the only thing that's still stable are my tenants are still paying rent. And so that was more dependable than my job. And then my husband's job that I thought were my safety net. So I borrowed that $50,000 and there was another four unit building on the market in my little town. And I decided I'm going to put that as a down payment and I'm going to buy this property that's going to bring me about $1,500 or $1,600 more a month in rent. And I thought I could at least have my housing needs met by my fourplex and my diapers and food paid by another fourplex. And if I lose my job, I'll have to just you know float until we find another one. And I was able to buy that building and that gave me the security to know I'd be okay. But after that, Sterling, the banks, the lending dried up. You know, in 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 the Great Recession, banks said no. It didn't matter how how much you had a great vision that you were going to buy bigger properties or buy more properties. They viewed real estate as significantly risky um, because lots of real estate investors were going into foreclosure. They were losing their property, so it was a major financial system crash, but also a real estate crash. So it took me several years, Sterling, to get to the place where I knew how to buy properties without banks. And so I had a couple of years where I didn't grow. I just worked on until I have money where the banks will say, yes, I'm going to work to maximize the value of the buildings that I already had, those three properties. And we're going to learn to fix them up, to raise the rents, to cut the expenses, to force the appreciation of the equity. And then once the banks say, yes, I can use that equity to scale and to do it again. And so it took us a little bit, but we figured it out. And we then started to be able to use the equity to grow and to buy more. And I started to learn creative financing. That was another thing that really helped me to scale when the banks dried up. And I think it's really important for your listeners that that bank lending is tightening again. You know, we're in the throes of the start of another recession through this pandemic. And it could get worse for a couple of years before it gets better. So as lending tightens up, it's really important that you figure out how else can I take down properties other than just by myself with my own money and the bank's money. Creative financing is one of the ways that I was able to do that. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the creative financing? Sure. So for me, I noticed that in my town, and and it's important that everybody looks at what does your market look like and where is their opportunity, right? For some people, that opportunity is going to be, you you might have a lot of duplexes in your area, but no fourplexes or 10-unit or 50-unit buildings. For other people, you may have no duplexes or fourplexes and all there is are 20 or 30-unit apartment buildings. So you have to say, where is the opportunity in the market space? And then how can I try to take down one of those properties without my own money? So for me, there were several four-unit buildings that were listed for sale. 
And so I knew that there were some people that were trying to, to get out of them. A lot of retiring landlords that wanted to cut their losses in, in the yeah. crash as well. And I started, I think that I read on bigger pockets, a few things about seller financing, that if you get a seller to agree to finance your property, you could help them to delay and defer paying their capital gains and still pay them an income, even though they weren't going to get that rental income anymore. So I just read a couple of blog posts and I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the IRS website and I'm going to see how the IRS views installment sales and seller financing. And I'm going to really get to know it, ask my accountant some questions, and then I'm going to look for some sellers that might have a capital gain problem and want income. Because what happens is with retiring landlord Sterling, a lot of them are mom and pop, especially on the smaller properties, like let's say two to 75 unit buildings. A lot of them are single owners. And when they go to sell, they have to pay a capital gain on the increase in value from the time they purchase it to what it's worth now. And if they took depreciation over all those years, all that depreciation basically gets added back. And so they essentially pay gain on almost the entire thing if they've owned their properties for more than 20 years. So if someone's going to sell a building that's you know $400,000 and they've got to pay 30% in that in taxes, they're not going to be real happy, right? They're going to have over $100,000 in tax hit. But if I could say to them, what if I bought your property and I gave you 10,000 more than asking price? So my offer is going to be better than everybody else. But instead of going to the bank and paying you off at once today, I can show you how I can pay you enough money over the next five years that you can pay your capital gain tax with the interest that I pay you and not have to pay any of it till I refinance you in five years. How does that sound? And the eyes just open like light bulbs. What are you talking about, right? So I started down the path of educating retiring landlords how I could give them more than what they wanted their property if they would wait for the payoff for a few years. I could pay them an income interest-only payment that would allow them to continue to create income while they were waiting for it to be paid off. And that was a better rate than what they could get in a CD. So if I could pay them 5% interest-only payments and they were otherwise going to take that money and stick it in a CD, they're making a lot more money off of me as a buyer than they would if they did a traditional sell. So, okay. I have several seller finance properties, but I did not think to go interest only or do the five-year cash out. So when you're paying them interest only payments, you're paying them less than a full, I mean, is that just, if it was, if it was amortized, over however many years, the portion that would be going to interest is what you're paying it? Yeah. So what's really interesting, Sterling, I figured out that you know people think a five or six interest rate when banks can do four is like terrible. Well, why would you pay more interest, right? But a fully amortized loan that I'm paying principal and interest on is typically about the same payment as an interest rate that's interest only that's like 2% higher, right? And the numbers are different depending on you know the timing of, of what rates are. But I found at the time, I think I could get bank financing maybe at five, four and three quarters or 5%. I offered my sellers 6% interest only because 6% was enough to go, oh, this is really good. Like at the time, they might've been able to get two or three in a, in a CD. So if mm-hmm. I could more than double that, I could pay them an amount that was attractive enough for them to wait to, to take that payoff. 
but it's also a much lower payment for me than a fully amortizing mortgage payment would have been with the bank. So I I remember one of them, I did an interest only payment and it was essentially $600 a month. And the fully amortized payment with the bank was like just over a thousand, like maybe a thousand forty, something like that. So I saved myself $400 a month in cash flow by paying interest only to somebody. And I got in with $10,000 down instead of 20 or 25% down. So it really can be a powerful win-win that helps you to cash flow better, come up with less money out of pocket, but makes the sellers super excited to do business with you because you're paying them much better than what they could park their money somewhere else. And you're usually giving them a slightly higher purchase price than what a cash buyer would offer them. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I'm going to revisit that idea. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about your short-term rentals? So I've seen you on Facebook doing, was it a five-part blog series on your short-term rental? The one that always sticks out to me is the beautiful one you have in the mountains on the lake. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sure. I showed it to my wife and she goes, yeah, we need to get into short-term rentals. (laughs) You know, I love short-term rentals in the right market. It's just like multifamily, right? There's there's ways that you can play in a niche where you can lose your shirt and there's ways you can do it really safely, right? And you can have a lot of fun. Just like there's A to D class properties in multifamily, each of which bring you a different risk and a different reward. The same thing with vacation rentals. Like there's some that are a dud that I would never buy and there's some that have a lot of opportunity, but maybe have a little more risk, right? So I started out doing vacation rentals because I wanted a place to go vacation and not have to pay an arm and a leg to go vacation there every week. So. I grew up in Texas and and near the water. We were at the beach every weekend, 30 minutes away from my house. And when I got ready to go rent a place in the summer in Maryland, which is the closest beach to me from Pennsylvania, they wanted four to $5,000 a week for a beach house. And I thought that is crazy. Like I used to get to go for free, right? So I thought I can't afford a four or $5,000 a week vacation at that point in my life. But I had rented a place that was owned by a local real estate investor. And he said, Anna, you can own the place and rent it out and have it cover your expenses, plus make a couple thousand dollars a year. And I was like, what? Tell me about this. How how come I didn't know about this, right? I'd never heard about short-term rentals. And that was about four years ago. I think we've had that first property four and a half years. So when I figured out that I could buy a really nice beach house right on the water, in a gated community with lots of, it was basically a resort, right? Lots of amenities. And it would pay me $10,000 a year to go use it two weeks a summer, plus use it spring, fall, winter. I'm like, okay, I'm in. But I had to learn that market and learn how do I make sure I profit? And how do I make sure that I'm getting good renters that aren't going to destroy my property? So I had a learning curve, but I, I jumped in with a really good realtor who knew that market really well and my investing friend who owned one and you know basically relied on their expertise to buy the right property. Do you manage it yourself? I do not. So the vacation rentals that are not near me, the ones in Maryland, I've had three now in Ocean City, Maryland that I've bought in the last four years. To me, they're four and a half hours away and it's constant time, right? Because you have people that are coming every single week. So you have to coordinate with the renters. You have to coordinate with the cleaning people the maintenance people. And it's just a lot of work. And I'm so busy trying to you know, grow my other stuff that it's well worth the money for me to pay them to manage the property. So for those, we do not self-manage. And 
I'm a real believer in, in properties that are near water, Sterling. So there's lots of kinds of Airbnbs that you can, you know, you can get them in, in Nashville and Orlando, New York City, ski resorts, little bitty towns, touristy places, or you can get them by water. And one of the things that I figured out in my studying of short-term rentals is that in recessions, while property values may come down a little bit in vacation towns, near water, the rental rates go up significantly in every recession. And the reason is, Sterling, because people won't take the expensive trip to Disney. They won't take the expensive trip overseas, but they'll go rent a vacation house by the water where they can make sandwiches, make pizza, eat in, and still have a really nice vacation. And after the pandemic, where people were quarantined for so long and afraid to get out, People want to staycation together out in nature where they don't want to have to wear a mask and be around people. So during this pandemic, where I saw opportunity was there are significant price cuts in a lot of properties by people who bought vacation rentals and couldn't afford them when, when they weren't filled because of the pandemic. But yet there's so many people that want to now rent them now that it's back open that I said, I'm going to divert a little bit of my money and diversify a little bit by buying some higher end rentals, vacation rentals that are near water, where I'm always going to have a constant flow of renters that are going to cash flow very, very well. And that's what I've done. I've gone after a few since the pandemic. Awesome. 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 How do you finance these properties, the short-term rentals? Short-term rentals are, are a little bit tricky. There's a couple of different ways, Sterling. The first one I did really creatively. I borrowed the down payment and I got a traditional Fannie Mae conventional second home loan on it. Um, 30 year fixed at like three and three quarters. So it was 10% down, 10% down at the time. Wells Fargo was the only bank that was doing that at the time. And then I essentially borrowed the down payment and then paid back the down payment. And now I have a 30 year mortgage on it. So when you buy a second home, essentially you can get conventional second home financing. It's 30 year amortization and the rates are not much higher than what it would be for your primary residence. So it's very, very attractive, but there are some limits. There's something called jumbo loan limits. And so every year there's like a max amount you can finance. So right now it's a little over $500,000 that you can finance as a second home with basically 10% down in a, in a lot of situations. Sometimes they want 20, but the good and the bad is the good is the long-term amortization and the low down payment. The bad is that you have to use your own income to qualify for the debt such that you can't use any of the rental income you could generate to qualify for that payment. Is there any limitations about where that down payment comes from? Because I know like with other Fannie Freddie loans, like you can't, you can't have a gift for an investment property down payment. Typically what happens though, Sterling, is they don't really ask you what's your source of funds. They just say, show me two months of bank statements to show that you had the money. So if you're going to buy a property, and this is whether you're Stick doing a vacation rental a months, yeah. or a multifamily or anything, you plan to get that money and borrow in advance with the foresight that you're going to need it. And don't go, I'm not going to borrow because then I'm paying interest on money I'm not using. I don't care. Put it in your checking account because once it's been through two bank statements, no bank is going to ask you where you got the money from, right? But that that could be an issue. So once you have a couple of them, the nice thing about second home sterling is I had the one at the beach. And then I bought a bigger one at the beach. So I said, I'm going to convert my second home townhouse to a rental. And now I'm going to have this much bigger beach house as my primary. So I got a, a second, second home mortgage. 
Then when I found the lake house that I just bought a couple months ago, it's two hours from my house and six hours from my beach rental. So as long as they're 50 miles away from each other, you can get another second home mortgage. So I have three second home mortgages, two beach houses and one lake house. And again, they, they don't prevent you from renting them out. You just have to attest that you are buying it and you will use it at least 14 days a year. And then if you decide to rent it out, that's completely up to you. You just can't, again, use rental income on the property to qualify for it. But you can buy a bunch, a second home, if you buy them in different markets. Awesome. Awesome. Good to know. You said you paying to have them managed because you were focused on growing other areas of your business. What other area of your business are you focused on growing? Primarily my coaching business. So I do coach other real estate investors who want to get into multifamily, whether it be small or whether it be going, you know, scaling up. And then also on my own syndication and joint ventures. So while I enjoy the vacation rentals and I have a few of them, primarily day to day, I mostly am a multifamily investor. So scaling that joint venturing on, on good syndications, I've partnered on a couple of deals in Texas and Atlanta in the last couple of years. And you have to kind of ask yourself as an investor for every investment that you're going to go into, what is the value of my time? And where am I going to make the most money for every hour that I put into my work? And if I I can hire something out cheaper than what the value of my time is, I need to hire it out so that I can focus my time on what I do best and what makes me the most money per hour spent. Awesome. What do you primarily coach your students on? Because you have so many different areas that you're active in. Sure. So primarily, Sterling, I focus in the multifamily space because it's it's what I have the most experience doing. However, what I what I really do that's a little bit different from you know, just teaching the fundamentals of multifamily is looking at people's pictures holistically, their financial picture. Where are you today? And where do you want to be in five years and in 10 years? And because of my background in the financial services industry and in private banking, I've worked with clients and very wealthy clients and their brokers for years and years on many different kinds of financial products. And so I'm able to kind of look at someone and say, okay, whether you're starting where I was in 2007 with nothing but a couple hundred thousand in debt, or whether you already have a portfolio of 40 properties and you want to scale it to the next level, how can you scale the most quickly with the least amount of risk in the way that's actually going to bring joy to your life and add to it rather than sucking up you know, another 10 or 20 hours of your week because you're chasing it the same way everyone else is, Right. Because real estate is so individual and where you are and where I am or where someone else is, is in a different place. And to be honest with you, for some people, scaling into big multifamily actively is the wrong move for them based on where they are in life. For others, scaling in in large multifamily on the passive side might be exactly what they need. And for others, having their own properties that they don't have to worry about selling in three to five years because their investors want to return might be the better thing for them to do first. So I kind of look holistically and say, what's your real financial goals? Is it cash flow? Do you need to replace your income? Or is it wealth accumulation that you can wait several years for that appreciation to happen? Or is it preservation of capital? Or are you somewhere in between? And based upon what you say and your personality and your skills and your job and your time and your financial resources, the answer for how you get to your financial freedom number 
is going to be very different from the the answer that somebody else gets. And that's what I love to help people to figure out. Yeah. Somebody called me yesterday with a deal and they said, would, would you buy it? I said, I wouldn't buy it, but you should. And yeah. he was like, what? I said, well, we're at different parts in our journey. Yes. With different, like I would have bought it three years ago, but I wouldn't buy it today. You know, that doesn't yeah. mean you shouldn't buy it today. Right. And that's what's so important. You know, I think it's really wise to read different books, to listen to podcasts like yours and to get input from different people and then say, what do I think will work best to me and try it? Sometimes it's smart to try it on a small scale, buy something small, learn what it is to get in the weeds and learn what it takes to handle that one. And then you become a much more savvy investor for the next one, right? But yeah, just get in the game. Like, Don't compare yourself with where someone else is and think you need to do exactly what they do to build exactly what they have. Ask yourself, how do I take myself to the next level? How do I add that one next property that's going to take me to the next level and help me to grow and get the experience that I need to, to then take it to that next level and do what someone else is doing? So what advice do you have for somebody that's looking to get started? I think to be really honest with yourself and spend some time really digging deep into figuring out why do you think you want to get started? Why do you think you want to buy big multifamily? People make the mistake when picking a a career, you know, I have a son that's a senior in high school and he's trying to figure out what do I want to do with life, right? And these kids go off and and spend $120,000 for a basic four-year education on something they know nothing about that they hope that one day they'll like. So they get their degree and then they spend years paying it off and then figure out 10 years down the road, I hate this profession, right? (laughs) We need to be able to spend more time introspective to say, Let's not rush life so much that we go all into something that's going to going to consume our lives and our finances for the next decade till we know that we think we might actually like it, right? So ask yourself those questions. Where do you want to be financially in a few years? And what do you enjoy doing? What are you really, really good at? And what do you absolutely hate, right? What's your risk tolerance? So Sterling, even within multifamily, if you want to get started, if you're someone that loves your job, maybe you're a doctor and you, you're a pediatrician, you love kids, you love what you do, and you don't want to retire from your job. You just want some extra money to be able to travel and have fun and have financial freedom. Then I'm not going to tell you to go create this big multifamily business and spend 40 hours a week scaling it. I'm probably going to tell you, why don't you start passively investing in some deals And why don't you go buy yourself a four-unit apartment building and learn on that, create some passive income small. But if you say, I love talking to people and I love talking to people about money and I have a job like me where I'm talking to clients already, maybe you're a financial advisor, then maybe capital raising is the right place for you to say, I'm going to focus myself on raising capital. If you love to swing a hammer and you love construction, and that's just what gets you excited, then I might say, why don't you focus on construction management and focus on partnering with others in a syndication where you're handling construction management? So find what you're good at and what you can have joy in doing for the long term, instead of trying to be someone else because you think that that's the fastest way to get the money, because you'll quit, you'll get miserable, you'll hate what you're doing, and you might make huge financial errors by jumping too quickly. So Ask yourself who you are, what you want, and and what you're willing to sacrifice to get there. And then create your investing business and your investments based upon 
making sure that they serve the life that you want to live rather than you changing your whole life to fit within some investment or business model that you think is the way to get the most money. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So real quick, I just want to hop into our radio round to help our listeners get to know you a little better. So what is your favorite book? So my favorite book ever is truly the Bible. My favorite investing book for multifamily would be Multifamily Millions. Okay. That was David Lindahl. Dave Lindahl. It was the first and only resource that I had when I got started. And it was enough to help me to scale to a couple million dollar portfolio without podcasts and courses and mentors and all that good stuff. Awesome. What's your favorite quote? My favorite quote. My own quote that's kind of my life model is love God, love people, use money and never give up. Good enough for us. I love it. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Spend time with my kids and travel. You know, part of the vacation rentals is really being able to go and create memories. And and I worked for so many years, 70 to 80 hours a week to build, you know, this, this dream and to build the real estate portfolio that I lost a lot of time with the kiddos. And so just spending time making memories, traveling without having to worry too much about the cost of doing so is, is really rewarding for me and what I love to do. Awesome. How can our listeners find out more about you, get in touch with you, invest in your deals, sign up for your coaching program? Sure. So on Facebook, I'm Anna, R-E-I mom, Kelly, and my websites are reimom.com for coaching and consulting and greater purpose capital for my investment opportunities. Awesome. Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I've really been looking, looking forward to this. I've followed all of the content you've put out for a long time. So it was an honor to have you on and uh, I can't wait to, to keep keeping up with you. Thank you so much, Sterling. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>